It's great. It's a lovely Friday afternoon here in San Antonio. I'm really enjoying this Celsius Live Fit Peach Vibe Sparkling Peach Edition that you got <laughs> me. I really needed it. Good. I'm glad you like it. Um, yeah, we're, we're setting the scene here. Uh, I just made Camille put on her matching crop circle necklace to make us yeah. feel in sync as we delve into this. I was I was feeling kind of out of sorts and I needed to feel grounded and since i've put it on things have already started to feel a lot better good yeah okay i'm gonna start us off with a part of a poem by heart crane just for the hell of it um it's the last three verses of a poem he wrote called the moth that god made blind and the torrid hum of great wings was his song when below him he saw what his whole race had shunned Great horizons and systems and shores all along, which blue tides of cool moons were slow, shaken, and sunned. A little time only, for sight burned as deep as his blindness before he had frozen in hell, and his wings Adam withered, gone, left but a leap, to the desert, back down, still lonely he fell. I have hunted long years for a spark in the sand, my eyes have hugged beauty and winged life's brief spell. These things I have, a withered hand, dim eyes, a tongue that cannot tell. Um, is this poem related? Not directly, but the lines can always be drawn. And in order to tell this particular story, we must be willing to draw them. Yes, it's going to take a lot of um, logical leaps. Mental leaps. Kind of, of, you know, put yourself, position yourself as an acrobat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, The last verse in particular feels relevant to what we're about to tell you. I've hunted long years for a spark in the sand. Uh, my eyes have hugged beauty and winged life's brief spell. These things I have a withered hand, dim eyes, and a tongue that cannot tell. Um, our, our tale today is one that spans many years. It's a story of devotion, secrecy, synchronicity, a little bit of foolishness. It's also a story that leaves a great deal up for speculation of otherworldly contact, of secret societies within secret societies, time travel, transnational conspiracies, etc., and it all begins when a family home in 1960s Houston catches on fire. In 1968, a home on Taft Street in Houston, Texas was surprised by a house fire. Details about this fire are hazy, but it was during the cleaning process that some of the smoke-contaminated artifacts from the residents were discarded in a local dump. Among the discarded objects, the unwanted survivors of the house fire were 12 handbound journals containing dozens of peculiar drawings. Fred Washington, a local trade shop owner and known junk explorer, was frequenting the dump on one of his standard expeditions for furniture, antiques, and valuables worthy of reselling and refurbishing in his shop. He stumbled upon the journals, and naturally his interest was piqued by the strange, tattered-looking books. Inside of these books were hundreds of intricately detailed and brightly colored drawings of strange crafts. They were almost carnivalesque depictions of airships, flying contraptions, 
labeled with strange coded symbols and journal entries in both German and English, all dated between 1908 and 1921. Yeah, and some included collages of news clippings about aviation and war, different scientific advancements of the day, but most of the drawings appear to be drafts for some sort of incredibly unlikely engineering project. And so page after page, Washington found mysterious depictions of large and powerful aero machines. Some of them looked kind of like zephyrs or balloons, and some of them looked totally unfamiliar to the state of aviation at the time. So he took these books back to the shop, and unable to find a good place for them, he left them in the back, covered by a tarp. And they remained this way for about a year, until a synchronous chain of events led them to once again see the light of day in the spring of 1969 when a young St. Thomas art student named Mary Jane Victor approached Fred Washington for any leads on old aviation-related material he might have sitting in his shop for a flight-themed exhibition her and her classmates were hoping to put on at the university. So Fred Washington pulls back the tarp, and in that moment unleashes the mystery of the strange life of a quiet man, Charles Albert August Delshaw. So we know very little about Delshaw's life. We know that he immigrated from Germany and came to America in 1850 at the age of 20 through the Galveston port, that he had a wife and several children, many of whom did not live long, that he worked as a butcher, and that he eventually settled in Houston, resigned himself to a hermetic life in the attic where he would spend his days drafting drawings of these machines. But there are a lot of missing pieces, chunks of time and facts prior to moving into his daughter's home in Houston that are wholly unaccounted for in public record. Most of the details lie only in the translations and interpretations of his work. Um, and our prime source for this book is a book for, I'm sorry, <laughs> our, <laughs> our prime source for this episode is a book I bought by Dennis Crenshaw. It was the only book I could find entirely dedicated to the subject. Yeah, we both bought copies and collectively spent upwards of $40 um, in, in our quest for knowledge and understanding. Right. Um, and it, the thing about this book is that I hated reading it. It's a highly fictionalized account of all of this, which is already so dubious. Um, yeah. That reading uh, like a, a, an intellectual synthesis <laughs> of um, what could have happened sort of made the research harder. But it did give us a good jumping off point for, I guess, what people's general perception and interpretation of, of yeah. this event is. And who, who the main players were in the kind of investigation and the attainment of these, these texts. Yeah, um, exactly. That are shrouded in so much um, mystery and conspiracy. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there are some absurd... Uh, passages and uh, cre- creative liberties taken, but you know that 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 that's what we're working from here. Um, there really, there really isn't a lot of accessible information out there to purchase. Once Delshaw's pieces were displayed in the St. Thomas Gallery. They attracted the attention of both Deb Manil, art collector and historian, and a man by the name of Pete Navarro, who was an artist, ex-cartographer for the Marines, and UFO researcher living in Houston at the time. Navarro tracked down the source of these drawings and was led to Fred Washington, to his junk shop, with whom he started a tenuous friendship with in an attempt to gain access to 
Delshaw's work and secrets. From here on out, Navarro was totally, completely consumed by the implications of Delshaw's drafts. So part of Navarro's initial findings were that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay. It's, it's absurd. Um, so part of the reason Navarro was so interested in this work is because the meaning wasn't clearly available. It was clearly something that you had to decode to understand. Um, so he sat down with them. He used a transposition cipher, and he kind of got to work trying to break down what it was Delshaw was talking about. Something that he found initially was the presumed existence of what Delshaw identified as the Sonoran Arrow Club. Yeah, in the Sonoran Arrow Club, uh, you know, referring to the region in Northern California, um, it it was a secret. It was a secretive society, a of, shadowy organization, uh, full of learned men mm-hmm. experimenting with at great heights. Um, <laughs> primarily Germans, I will add. Yeah, prim- primarily German immigrants. German German immigrants experimenting with with flight um, in a big way. And before before it was flight was the thing to experiment with <laughs> yeah they, we hadn't quite gotten to f- to that in the in the trend cycle of um the of invent of inventors <laughs> um yeah it was kind of if navarro thought if what he was discovering was in fact true it would have huge implications for our understanding of the development of flight in Absolutely. America and the world. Yeah, it would I mean it would pretty much shake up uh everyone's understanding of history. Yeah, <laughs> national would, history. It w- it would put to rest the idea that the Wright brothers uh were the first to kind of experiment or, or ex- you know take off flight i was trying to make a joke about how the right brothers are actually the wrong, the wrong brothers <laughs> but then i trailed off um, um yeah <laughs> some, of the, some of the specifics <laughs> of the club and of the drawings were that del would frequently he never claimed to be an inventor and engineer himself he was simply the draftsman so some of these drawings he would identify the designer between behind the craft um there were a couple of designers that he mentioned by name one of them peter menace who will become a an important figure um, in this story. And he also identified another club called NIMSA, who Navarro thought was a larger secret society. The, the financier, the dark, yes. the dark financier behind the whole mm-hmm. operation. Pulling the strings, um, sending, you know, the Sonoran Arrow Club, the resources, the finances to make all of this happen. Yeah. Um, and again... You know, there's no, there's no record or (laughs) there are no other resources that kind of, that like talk about NIMSA or the Sonoran Arrow Club anywhere else that have been found today. There's simply nothing else. Thank God Delshaw documented it. (laughs) Thank, and and thank God old Pete Navarro stumbled into Fred Washington's junk shop and got to work. Right. And I don't, I don't remember who... It was, but it was a different ufologist, I think, that they were talking to that speculated that NIMSA stood for the New York Model Zephyr Association, and he speculated that based purely on, you know, letters. 
on his like best guess of what the acronym com- could mean but he was like I got yeah obviously him, you know yeah that could be true that sounds honestly that sounds pretty true as hell that yeah. sounds he's he had his thinking hat on yeah but he was he was really sh- sure of himself um and i think i don't i think pete navarro's interest in in this he he was trying to maybe find connections to you between this world that del Shao kind of spelled out for him and the um airship mysteries of the late 1890s um yeah absolutely yeah. and i think part of what made navarro uh connect those two is the presence of the nb gas um which del Shao wrote about specifically in relation to peter menace one of the engineers um they also called it soup um it, what you know it's a mysterious substance that peter menace never wrote the formula down for why didn't Peter Menace write the formula down? Was he afraid of the great power that it contained? Was he a vain genius who wanted to protect his 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 the creation of his beautiful mind from the corruption of future generations? Was he only given a specific amount from the green outstretched hands of extraterrestrials? Now that's a good question. Say? Yeah, it's the thing with Peter Menace is that the the ragtag team of Delshaw researchers that kind of are colored in this book, um, the secrets of Delshaw. Um, this ragtag team uh, was not only comprised of Pete Navarro, but some of his brothers, and also a man by the name of Jimmy Ward. Mm-hmm. And. <laughs> Jimmy Ward had a lot of big ideas. Jimmy Ward seemed to really be approaching this whole thing with the idea that there was some sort of alien connection. Yeah, and so Pete Navarro's, I guess, speculation about why this might be connected to the aeroship mysteries of the late 1800s had more to do with the fact that these men could have caused things to be in the sky at a time when other people were seeing things in the sky that kind of matched the description of the aeroships that Del Shaw was depicting in his work. Jimmy Ward, however, his speculation was more that, you know, Del Shaw was an alien. He, he, Jim, Jimmy Ward was trying to kind of dev- suggest that maybe Del Shaw was an alien or he was given supreme knowledge from aliens that kind of helped seed this new wave of flying technology absolutely um and navarro kind of he kind of leaned into it and he was like okay maybe peter peter menace is the alien or the one that's been in contact with aliens and the reason he was a little bit dodgy with the whole formula thing was because they only gave him a specific amount of um i think i think that they wrote that the formula, they don't know exactly what the specifics were, but it was green crystals with water, right? Yeah. Yeah, so so he was thinking maybe uh, Peter Menace was a little bit embarrassed that he had run out of his his crystals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the exact... Um, n- nobody quite knows the, the exact formulation of, 
this gas, this this substance that led these airships to fly. Um, yeah, the great airship sightings in the late 1890s, those um, trail the events that Delshaw writes about by several decades. So the idea um, that these researchers are kind of pursuing is that maybe the Sonoran Aero Club and on a greater level, NIMSA led to the t- development of different types of uh, clandestine airship technology down the road, that it had some sort of legacy there. Yeah, and a lot of these sightings were specifically over California and Texas, and people were claiming not only to have seen ships in the sky, but to have seen or heard of people building them, met the occupants, etc. So basically, (laughs) the thing is, in the late 1800s, people started seeing airships. And these were, these sightings were documented in newspapers. Yeah. And while you might be thinking to yourself, guys, that was the age of yellow journalism. Some of the sightings were pretty damning. Yeah. Some of the craft were seen by thousands mm-hmm. um and some of the people who saw them were you know not people to be really smart with. yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, scores of geniuses saw craft <laughs> flying over sacramento and other areas yeah i mean there's a point in texas where just day after day newspapers were printing these airship sightings it was it was incredibly sensational for, for months i mean the the arrow mysteries there were like two eras of of them there was kind of like a several month period in the fall where people were seeing a lot of them and then four months kind of spring summer where they were just yeah. All anybody ever saw when they opened their eyes. Yeah, April specifically. And people were claiming not only to have seen ships in the sky, but to have seen or heard of people building them, um, claimed to have met the occupants, etc. And a lot of these uh, sightings took place, a lot of UFO sightings in general, we should add, take place near water, which kind of, if we're, you know, connecting the dots, that would that would fit with a theory that extraterrestrials have found a way to convert water to fuel which would fit yeah. into the whole uh, Peter Menace, Del Shao soup thing. Um, Just out of water. Yeah. Method. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, there were sightings like uh, where, you know, you would have a couple of um, gentlemen playing uh, playing dominoes in the, in the church rec room and mm-hmm. an explorer would saunter on in claiming making bold claims of flying machines hey i just got back from mars can i have some water hey hey boys (laughs) that classic 1890s uh accent hi guys (laughs) oh my god okay (laughs) uh yeah a lot of this happened in east texas which I guess I already fucking said. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and maybe a guy who kept appearing was a guy named Wilson. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, a man named Wilson kept making himself known. Um, he, he, they called him Aeronaut Wilson in the Galveston News. He was first spotted by CG. Sorry. Goddamn. There was one airman who kind of kept making himself known uh, during these Texas sightings, uh, who went by the name of Wilson. Mm -hmm. Aeronaut Wilson. And Aeronaut Wilson would appear in various settings and often asking for buckets of water to fuel his aeroplane. Usually when people would uh, claim that they saw men like working on the ships, Wilson would uh, appear from a cloud of... (laughs) smoke and mist and ask for water he would often tell people that he he just got in from new york um which if we're following the logic you know that's where nimza was that's and where the other large hub for aeronautic uh flying activity. machine adventure and decades later if you're a longtime listener you'll also know that new york is where whitley streeper was abducted by yeah little blue man mm-hmm Tosh Wilson um, was a member that was identified by Navarro through Del Shao's writings as a member of the Sonoran Aero Club. So they made the connection that perhaps Tosh Wilson was related to Wilson, was Wilson, Aeronaut Wilson was perhaps his son, his, his uh, I don't know, uh, Pro- nephew. Projection of his own essence. This seems like the sort of group that would have really solid uncle-nephew dynamics. <laughs> So maybe maybe we got some some nephews in there. Yeah, uh, a, sort of a proto Boy Scouts. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, a lot of these late eighteen hundreds airship mysteries were quote unquote quote proven to be a hoax. But what one John A. Keel would say about that, who is the author of the Mothman Prophecies um, and a prominent ufologist, he claimed that these people or, you know, beings were ultra terrestrials who were perhaps purposefully spreading misinformation and staging false claims to keep their true place hidden. Um, And that, you know, their actual visits to earth were in more remote places and to more, more quiet people like one Charles Delshaw. And this kind of gets into what a lot of ufologists think about why the government would claim hoax about extraterrestrial visits, which is, the like water fuel suppression theories because a lot of people assume that because of I guess what's been reported about the crafts themselves where they land the extraterrestrials have a means of converting water into fuel um, which we've seen that pop up again and again in scientific history people claiming that they can do that sort of thing gasoline pills Um, and obviously if it got out that we've been graced with a formula from <laughs> from the ultra terrestrials to turn water into fuel that would that would shake up the world it would it would change my life <laughs> <laughs> that would yeah i would be a new woman and good god the the, the implications are they are massive yeah yeah so so john keel says that you know hoax or not it's it's sort of you know it's all in the aliens plan 
Aliens Plan by Drake. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are, they work in ways that we don't understand. Yeah, basically. that's that's the next AI Drake song. Mm-hmm. So before we get into some of the speculation, I wanted to frame this by reading something that uh, UFO researcher and writer Jerome Clark presented um, in his Fate magazine because I think it gives you kind of a good idea of what the general thesis was of the research being done on Del Shaw at the time. Um, so he starts by saying, Throughout history, innumerable groups, societies, and cults, many of them secret, many not, have banded together around the idea that they, in one way or another, were in contact with higher beings who taught them things and oversaw their lives. Virtually every known religion assumes its ad- adherents were and are guided in this manner. So do cults of magicians, spiritualists, contactees, etc., Some gifted scientists and inventors privately have believed that non-human entities helped them in their work. One of these was Thomas Edison, who is said to have credited mysterious little people with assisting him in making certain of his discoveries. Um, He also goes on to say, Suppose that in both Germany and the United States, specifically in California and New York, a secret society of brilliant scientists, technicians, and inventors established contact with non-human agencies which told them how to construct aerial vessels, ordering the group to keep its work under wraps. Presumably, the German and American branches were in communication with one another, and around 1848, some of the Germans migrated in order to pool their efforts with those of their American cohorts. Yeah, Um, and if you, you know, recall Jimmy Ward has a huge interest in UFOs and aliens and the way that he actually first became acquainted with the Delshaw mystery was through reading another work by Jerome Clark, um, his book, The Unidentified. Um, and he got a hold of Pete Navarro somehow and called him up. And that's how they kind of became entangled in this project together. So we're going to get into some other, uh, speculations about the work of Charles Delshaw now. Um, I will admit, you know, last night I was feeling a little bit, a little bit freaked out that there's so little information. I was looking at my notes and just thinking, how are we gonna, how are we gonna turn this into um, a beautiful story worth telling all of, uh, you know, the beautiful people who choose to listen to her? I'm sorry. Okay, so last night. Um, I will admit I was feeling, you know, a little bit strange. I was I was kind of worried about how little information there seemed to be about all of this. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to make it into something interesting and um, uh, sensible, you know. But then I sat down and I, I went on the internet and I saw people on the internet talking about Delshaw, which was a very strange and timely coincidence. Um, and what I saw was not necessarily something that I agree with or am interested in, but it was QAnon stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> someone had posted a Delshaw plate. Um, it was more of a mobile, an automobile, a vehicle of some sort than it was an aeroship. It looked like a big carnival train. And on the side, the word Trump was painted. And then in, in the lower right-hand corner, um, the number 45 appeared. So naturally, you know, that sent sent the Trump heads into a... A frenzy. Um, Specifically, I I, I guess I don't even really know if this is QAnon, but it just seems... Like their vibe or something? Yeah. It's the the Trump is a time traveler camp, right? Yes. So I started seeing that, 
and it made me feel it made me feel insane because I sat down with my book, I opened up my computer, and that was the first thing that I saw. And Delshaw's not somebody you hear about, like no, how we we even found them in the first place. You were going through a book of like obscure outsider artists. Yeah, when I was when I was researching uh, Forrest Bess. So it it all just kind of happened in a weird coincidental way. Um, also, the first time that Camille and I met up to talk about this was April twentieth in our current year, twenty twenty three, which just happened to be exactly one hundred years after Delshaw died. He died on April twentieth, nineteen twenty three. I can't think of a more a greater reason for us to keep pursuing yeah, this topic. We've been chosen to go on the pod and giggle about history yeah so even if you feel like we're being a little too goofy with it know that <laughs> this was destiny at mm-hmm. play we were, were supposed to do this yeah exactly um when i was looking at that tweet i was looking at some of the responses to see what people had to say and there were a couple of people that were familiar with him um and some of them were talking about how he created early anti-gravity machines, or rather the Sonoran Aero Club uh, invented early anti-gravity machines. And this kind of goes into some of the other speculation that we've seen about the Sonoran Aero Club inventing time travel devices, um, including early plans for things like modern lunar technology and early plans for the Nazi bell, which of course is the wonder weapon, the purported wonder weapon, um, the Nazis allegedly had plans for, may or may not have built, uh, you know, it's, it's a conspiratorial thing, uh, that kind of goes into Nazi occultism and interest in ancient practices, ancient aliens type stuff. Yeah. Um, and you know, perhaps the, the Nazis were developing this based off of ancient astronauts or extraterrestrials. Perhaps Delshaw was also developing things based off of extraterrestrials, um, some of the shapes are kind of similar, yeah, similar to the uh, NASA lunar module, and similar to the Bell. Other things that are are prominent in today's skies. Yeah, who's to say that somewhere in Germany, contact with ETs weren't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Something at that this occurred. point, who's to say anything? <laughs> 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 That's kind of our general thesis. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah, and there was also, when you were, when you stumbled onto the Trump time traveler shit, there was also a video... Um, there was a whole yeah, sort I, of conversation around it happening. There was like a long video someone linked about this, but it seemed like their connection to it was uh, they were connecting it to some other like personal history conspiracy thing that paranoid. Uh, yeah, may, which maybe was like entirely correct. I don't know, but um, I didn't want to watch watch it because his voice was really off putting to me. <laughs> I. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that this is the sort of thing that you can draw a lot of lines from. And Camille and I are kind of doing that in a way that feels uh, like we're trying to emulate or or, um, uh, simulate what a UFO researcher would do. 
um, like where their lines are drawn, Navarro and Jimmy Ward, all of them. Um, but what the truth is and what we believe, that's hell. That's secondary. That's something that we do not know. <laughs> we don't. We don't know. We don't know anything. The thing too is that when we were reading, um, you know, things about like like Whitley Strieber and cryptids and stuff like that, it's easier for us to talk about it because we can say, you know, we're looking at these people's experiences. But what we're looking at here, they're not firsthand experiences. We're looking at sort of modern interpretations of things that happened a long time ago, and it's just, it's not a translation, really. It's just an interpretation. Um, so dealing with that rather than a firsthand experience that we can choose to honor is kind of like where things get tricky and looking at and looking at the whole Del Shao story. Yeah. And so I think that's why we decided to kind of structure this episode around speculation. Um, because to, you, you know, treat the information that is out there as fact would be um, a disservice to, kind of like what's interesting about yeah. about these books of Del Shao's. Yeah, the definitely. Um, yeah. I don't know, Faith, do you think, do you think it's possible that Del Shao was having visionary experiences? What do you mean by visionary experiences? Do you think, do you think that he was communing with some sort of divine entity that was projecting these images of these ships and like do or do you, do you think he was yeah what do you what do you make of like how these images came came to him um well thinking about the time period i really like uh like earlier early industrial art um because i think that the early interpretations of mechanical inventions are really strange and fun um a lot of like the lithography from that time have to do with this and so i think it's possible certainly that del Shao was engaging in some foolishness and looking at these drawings and just creating something that resembled them that maybe came from his mind um it's also possible that you know, he was having some sort of divine or extraterrestrial, ultra-terrestrial, as Kiel would say, uh, interaction that was leading him to this. And it is also very possible. I think, you know, I'm inclined to believe in the Sonoran Aero Club itself, right? Like the existence of the secret society, even perhaps the existence of Nimza, whether they were a part of actual extraterrestrial experiences... I don't know if I believe that, you know, I think that a bunch of guys working on stuff in a forest, like that's, that happens all the time. And it's one of the most beautiful things <laughs> in the world. One of the be- most beautiful things about the human experience, certainly. Yeah. Um, and you know, the dates, like people have been attempting flight as long as they've been like thinking about being alive like there are countless cases and legends of people you know for example flying too close to the sun or just trying to 
sketch up different flying machines um so it's not that insane to think that just like several decades before airplanes started becoming you know common common use like that people were like you know throwing rocks and trying to like see if they'll land like they it it makes sense that there was kind of like a, a like a context and you know different people making different attempts um yeah and i think i think it also makes sense that they might have to do it in secret because that was a time of such rapid innovation that a group of scientists working on something in private that maybe isn't very documented in public record i think that that's that's plausible yeah um there was one case that we you know know in texas in particular um of a kind of inventor type named um jacob broadbeck who was also a german immigrant um or of german descent i don't quite remember if he yeah he was an immigrant i recently learned about him because i stumbled upon his grave in lukenbach it's interesting um yeah and you know the the claims about his kind of attempt at flight are a little bit hazy you know it's a lot of hearsay but some say that he had you know an effective flight um before the wright brothers with a small model plane with a rudder wings propeller powered by coiled springs um and the craft also had accommodations for water landing but there's one claim that he uh took flight east of lukenbach um there's another that says that he successfully flew his plane in San Pedro Park in San Antonio. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere that there was a bust of him in the park, which oh. I haven't seen, but oh. I need to go investigate. Interesting. Um, but yeah, this happened, this was said to have happened in the 1860s, the late 1860s. Um, whether or not it's true, again, we don't know. But... There were all sorts of cases like this kind of happening um, around the turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, Camille, do you think that the value of a human mind appreciates or does it depreciate as its ideas become anachronistic with modern society? <laughs> I don't, I mean, can you, can you give an example? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean... In the case of Delsha, I was thinking a lot about... I also wrote out a stupid question about, you know, when does the output of a man move from art to relic, right? Like, would these drawings have been valuable had they not been found, I guess, you know? Yeah. Because it's strange. And there are there are a lot of other artists like this, like Henry Darger, for example, um, who have their, like, work found posthumously... Um, and it kind of just feels like, I guess when you don't have a good sense of who the artist is as a person while they're living, it it becomes like just a product of their time or something like that, which is interesting in the Del Shao case, because truly like in the book, um, when they're trying to research it and find if any of this was real, what they found was mostly pointing to the idea that it's not, but it's still such an engaging spectacle that would make sense given the context of the time like 
it does feel like it absolutely could have happened, but there's not a whole lot to back it up. Um, and I, I try to avoid saying things like that because I don't want to, you know, well, the fact that I believed it means that yeah, <laughs> it's dangerous. It's, yeah. Um, but I do think, I mean, if, if this wasn't real, then there are certainly other scientific secret societies. Um, but I think that I'll, I'll go on record saying that I think that the Sonoran Aero Club was real. Yeah, I th- I think I think it makes sense. It makes sense that something could have existed in that in that place and time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I th- I think, like you said, part of the what's compelling about these books is because they demand to be understood and kind of connected back to to a time and a place. Um, that feels kind of inaccessible in our in our modern context. Um, it's a it's a mystery to solve. It's like a puzzle to piece yeah. together. And I think that at least to the researchers who have kind of tackled them, maybe that's that's exciting. It's also very whimsical. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody. Um, I don't know. Can you know you know say that there's something exciting and. Um, you know, universally appealing about the idea of, you know, flying machines. Yeah, um, and I do think Delshaw's work is valuable. And P.G. Navarro, Fred Washington, they stumbled upon such an ideal experience, which is finding uh, hundreds of pieces of art from an unknown artist that warrant, you know, a lifetime of research. Like, God, God I wish, I wish that would happen to me. Um, I'm going to go to like yard sales after this. I don't know. Yeah. Find, find the nearest junk shop. Uh, look under, a- ask the shopkeeper if they have anything interesting under a tarp somewhere. Yeah. There are secrets in almost every attic, I'm sure. And the only way we can find them is by setting small house fires. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and this begins the, uh, pyromaniac, uh, era of texas overture um but yeah it, it, i don't know and it, god i wish you know it, obviously this isn't a visual medium we'll definitely attach photos when we upload the episode but i don't know the these plates these colored images of these flying contraptions you know there's one called the arrow goosey and that is said to be the first that's and navarro traces one Peter Menace as being the inventor of it. Um, but they're, you know, they have wheels and they, they, you can see like the little people flying inside and, you know, in, in the kind of dapper looks of the day, it feels like how a Rube Goldberg machine like should feel like it, it, it just, it, it kind of taps into this like, delicate system yeah the the need the desire to kind of tinker and (laughs) and like see a series of like absurd mechanisms through a process which i think you know is appealing yeah it was also interesting to me reading back on it um most of the experiences we read about were in april um which is, you know, the time of year that it is now. So I, 
it just made me think a lot about, I guess, my own surroundings and why everything becomes so concentrated. Um, and there's a Blue Jean Tyranny song where the woman says, Slipping in between the pulses of consciousness, UFOs appear mostly in April, coinciding with the sudden appearance and disappearance of stars. But anyway, it's always the first time. Which is interesting because I think these things happen in concentrated groups, for, but for a lot of the experiencers, it feels, I think, like an isolated event until they find something like this that brings them towards it in a way that feels um, contextual and like it has some sort of implication deeper than just what their projection might have been that, that uh, led them to it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so in the book, when um, Pete Navarro and Jimmy Ward are kind of shooting the shit, trying to put their noggins together, trying to figure out, um, you know, if there is an alien connection to the Delshaw mystery, um, there's a bit of dialogue that, frankly, we just find entertaining and absurd uh, that we want to read, and it'll also give you a sense of, like, how this book is written. Um, So this is Jimmy Ward speaking. Remember, Pete, I'm using a pattern that has already been established in such cases. What has been accomplished is a group of intelligent people have been pointed in a direction of experimentation and study, which they may have never taken had the alien not intervened. The object being to jumpstart an era, an area of human achievement and technology that seemed to be feebly heading in the wrong direction. It seems that these alien helpers, for lack of a better word, always give the chosen contacts a nudge in the right direction by giving them hints, but never the whole solution. Ward glanced at his watch and announced that he had to go. You just might have something there, Jimmy. But here's another thought, Pete said as he got up from the desk to escort Jimmy to the door. You know, as Delshaw mentions more than several times, Peter Menace also used to disappear. Could Peter Menace have been the alien himself? Jimmy laughed as he followed Pete out of the study. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. As usual, I bring you a possible answer and you give me more questions to ponder. Um, I like your egghead Jimmy. (laughs) (laughs) I've been been in the mirror practicing egghead Jimmy. Um, Yeah, but a lot of the book is just kind of um, ambiguously real um, or imagined interactions that occurred um it's interesting reading back on this it's like so much of what is being written is just searching for some sort of direction and searching for like the overlord of this operation yeah i i think it's interesting that they turn towards the idea of like some sort of mastermind versus just like a collection of researchers and inventors kind yeah. of just chipping away at something. There there needs to be some sort of grand informant. They're they're trying to like bring in the fantastical a yeah. little bit to something that could if it existed was probably just like normal normal inventing and tinkering. Yeah. Or like war war stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, the fact that the fact that he's uh, Jimmy Ward is attributing it to that is is just an interesting jump, um, an interesting insight into his beautiful mind. 
Yeah, so we just kind of want to briefly talk about some of Navarro and Ward's research methodologies um, when investigating the Delshaw story. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of their um, kind of posits come from interpreting the the ciphers and the codes in in the work, but they also tried to do some corroborating out in the real world. They um, Navarro like wrote the Sonora Chamber of Commerce. He was trying to you know see if all the names of alleged Arab Club members were real people in the records. Um, and the Sonora Chamber of Com- Commerce wrote back and said that there was just there's nobody of those <laughs> names that have ever yeah. lived here. Um, so then they kind of were like, well, it's very possible that you know Delshaw was writing fake names on purpose and you know to protect. The, the the secrecy of uh, yeah. the organization and stuff or that like that. The, the uh, California wildfires took all of the <laughs> evidence away with them. Yeah, um, and he also goes uh, the author of the book too goes um, at length to be like some of the historical events, like some of these fires are mentioned and that happened in real life and that are documented or alluded to in Delshaw's um, plates. So that kind of kind of just they did some of that, um, and then a little later on in the book, there's um, another researcher who's introduced. <laughs> um, this, the kick that I got out of this was just so I was like <laughs> so tired reading this book, and then when they introduced him, I I just lost it because it Gorgeous. feels like a, a guy we would like a guy we would know. Yeah, I like feel an like AI generated UFO researcher. I feel like I can very, um, you know, I can really visualize this this ragtag team of men kind yeah. of going boots on the ground together, trying to get down to the bottom of things. But um, this is chapter twenty five, outside interest, Houston, Texas, nineteen eighty one. Well, here, well, he's here. Is the short message Pete heard from an obviously excited Jimmy Ward on the answering machine? That was the entire message Peter needed. Several weeks before a popular researcher and author of paranormal books had contacted Jimmy, his last book had been a huge bestseller and was currently being made into a first-run movie. He had shown a lot of interest in their investigation in Adele Shaw's work and had asked to meet Pete and Jimmy on a trip through Houston. We'll call him Warren Fontaine, for lack of a better name. <laughs> They're yeah, obscuring his identity. Pete called Jimmy on the phone and agreed to meet with him. Warren and his assistant, whom we'll call George Nelson, the next morning at a popular restaurant near the writer's hotel for breakfast and to map out their plans for the day. Um, yeah, and then the crew over like several days kind of just like putzes they around. They go on a boys' trip. They go on a boys' trip to the cemetery. Warren Fontaine sounds like the name of like a seventies saxophone player or something. Such a smooth name for Yeah, or like such a, a volatile field. <laughs> to me it sounds like a like a like a time ancient vampire and like <laughs> the vampire diaries or something. Just like some you, you know figure like that. Um but it, it is compelling that they're you know he's like kind of sniffing out the Dell shell uh mystery trying to see if it's marketable um and then later on after they kind of go on their little research adventures um 
it's revealed that Warren Fontaine, whose true identity is never revealed, was also like a government mouthpiece um, when it came to like disinformation about UFOs, like on some Richard Doty shit. Yeah. Um, they it, also claim that he stole um, or he, he tried to borrow the books from Pete Navarro and then never gave them back. Yeah. Uh, and I can't help but speculate about his real identity, you know, allegedly a successful paranormal author in ufologist. I mean, William Moore, perhaps, you know, author of the Roswell incident, mm-hmm. uh, confirmed Richard Doty mouthpiece. Victim, yeah. Um, I want to read a little something that's in the book about kind of speculating about his interests and in the mm-hmm. uh, whole whole story. Um, yeah, Warren Fontaine admitted to researchers that, to the researchers that he had been spreading misinformation concerning government dealings in regards to UFOs. He said he had agreed to pass the phony information around to the UFO crowd in exchange for real information. He felt this was a fair trade. Pete wondered if Warren's trip to Houston to look into Delshaw was really all about a book. Or did Warren Fontaine, a, t- a top-drawer researcher slash writer and admitted government mouthpiece, have another agenda? So, yeah. I don't know. I think that leaves... Uh, yeah, <laughs> Open I don't some know. more doors. Did he have another agenda? Government mouthpieces and disinformation campaigners usually do. <laughs> what What could he possibly be trying to... <laughs> they gave him a very trustworthy fake name <laughs> a man named Warren Fontaine approached me for for um potential historical secrets I'd, I'd hand him over yeah he sounds dazzling <laughs> he sounds like he has the charisma of a magician so on their little boys trip they also go to the Glenwood Cemetery I think I that sounds right <laughs> I'm pretty sure like, I think it's the Glenwood Cemetery I know that they were, um, they kind of focused on the fact that, um, Howard Hughes was also buried nearby. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And they felt like that had a lot of gravity. Yeah, so the, the boys arrive, um, at Washington Cemetery or an adjacent cemetery. There's kind of a lot of catty corner places of rest, um, and they encounter Delshaw's tomb. Um, but the strange thing about the tomb is that his name is misspelled. It's inconsistent with the spelling of Delshaw and in in the books. Um, it's spelled D-E-L-L-S-C-H-A-W. Um, and they thought that was very curious, but also, you know, not out of the realm of possibility because Delshaw was known to butcher his spelling and words and kind of writing in like a hodgepodge of uh, coded German and English Um, and the birth date for that was June 4th 1833 and the death date was April 20th 1923 Um, and they thought that was significant um, because there wasn't really any other record for his birthday or really anything about his life prior to when he was documented entering Houston in 1889. Um, 
And another thing that was interesting about uh, their trips to the cemetery was that it's also entangled in a very cartoonish murder of this groundskeeper woman named Leona Tong. Um, and the story goes that she was an older woman who was kind of settling in in her home on the cemetery grounds. And then an unknown person kind of suffocated her with upwards of five pieces of clothing, uh, including a slip, um, and then like smothered her with a plastic bag, which is awful and gruesome. Um, But the way the book, (laughs) the way the author writes about it is like kind of absurd and says that it, it was not such a coincidence that she might have been killed because a certain author had plans to interview her about Delshaw that morning um and then he was reading the newspaper and almost spilled his coffee he said when he realizes that his plan was somehow foiled by a witting or unwitting murderer I think Mm. it's time to land this plane. Okay. Uh, What do we think? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think that all in all, this whole thing is really fascinating. I mean, it's so full of, you know, secrets and... (laughs) (laughs) Strangeness. Yeah, it's frustrating when secrets remain secret i first saw del Shao in the san antonio museum of art which owns a lot of his work actually um and when i was younger i was really attracted to this type of art sort of the carnivalesque circus advertisement type thing um but i didn't learn the extension of the story until recently i remember being fascinated by it i even remember reading about the arrow club but i hadn't read the details until i saw it in that book um and it kind of just got me thinking about what history is, how we treat history, how do we decide, you know, what's folklore, what's what's myth. Yeah, it forces you to reconsider this whole story, like long-held historical truths, um, preconceived ideas. You know, so much of history is just, you know, accepted and elevated folklore as it is, like material evidence. Um, and, you know, anytime you're healthily probing your you know, established ideas is valuable, I think, because it makes you maybe come across things that you hadn't previously. And by nature of existing, these books by Delshaw force us to consider the possibility of the Sonoran Arrow Club. Um, and it and it is exciting and interesting to think about that existing. Um, you know, you can also really just take what you want from the story as a whole you know if you want to believe that peter menace existed and he was a star seed you can if you you know want to believe that delshaw was a you know quiet and pensive man who escaped his daily life by creating beautiful um and imaginative drawings of 
fabled machinery and organizations, then, then you can. It's sometimes fine and fun when secrets um, are never revealed. Yeah, because then you get to keep pursuing them mm-hmm. forever. <laughs> you get to enter a beautiful cycle that never ends. And that's very comforting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, another one in the books, number five. Thanks for joining us um, through the vicissitudes of the, the Charles Delshaw research. Um, <laughs> um, have a beautiful day. This has been Texas Overture. Yeah. I'm Camille. I'm Faith. We'll see you next time. Take all